The Yesterday and Today podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the Beatles. The show is in no way affiliated with Apple Corps, nor any organization connected to John, Paul, George, or Ringo in any way, though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and Today, 1979, Episode 1, King of Pop. In this episode, we will cover January through February 15th. Hello, hello, testing, testing. At this time of year... Oh... Let me first introduce myself. Maybe you have heard me before. I am the Great Walk. And as you know, the Great Walk must be done. Now, at this time of year, when Brahma is in Burma. The day of Brahman is said to last 1,000 years and his night is of equal length. Well, for us human beings, this is the end of the year now. And our minds turn towards what is laughably called the future. No mind can comprehend the infinite an absolute unknown. As we say in the Himalayas. Now let me tell you. My resolution for the year 1979 is to renounce completely everything but complete luxury and self-indulgence. Now I suggest this is going to be very, very difficult. Very difficult indeed. But I feel it my, my duty. Not only as a human being, but as a person. Or was it not George Formby who said there are 4,320,000,000 mortals or earth years which is one day of Brahma? So one way of looking at it is simply not to look at it at all. And that's exactly what we're going to be doing now. We're settled down deeply, I hope, and comfortably. 
my easy chair, my bed, or a bath. Put the incense on, light the candles, and give yourself a hard time. It's 1979. day after the new year, Yoko Ono closed on a deal with Nelson Gardner, a dairy farmer from Bridgewater, Virginia, purchasing 103 registered Holstein dairy cows for the Lennon's farm in upstate New York. By the end of the week, Yoko purchased an additional 71 registered Holstein cows from the Kenneth Kibler farm in Luray, Virginia. On January 15th, John did his own shopping and purchased a Model F Ebony Upright Steinway & Sons piano. On January 20th, the Canadian newspaper, the Toronto Star, reported that several weeks ago, John and Yoko contacted the luxury Manhattan trendy department store, Bergdorf Goodman, on 57th and 5th Avenue. Store manager John Cohen recalls the conversation he had with Yoko. She said, John wants to buy me a fur coat. According to Mr. Goodman, he told Cohen that sales are slow and Cohen should go to her and bring several cases of furs. Here, John Cohen recalls. Well, the real story goes like this. Christmas Eve, we were having uh, a 
pretty difficult season selling fur that year. And the phone rang in the first salon. It was Yoko Ono. And her question to me was, can you come to the apartment tonight because John wants to buy some furs for me? And I said, you know, we're closing early. It's Christmas Eve and I'm not sure I can arrange it. And Irony Mark said, Jack, do whatever it takes to make those numbers happen. We get to the apartment building. We ring the bell and she comes to the door and she said, come on in, but take your shoes off first. She said, but hold on. I want John to be a part of this. So we sat in this room for a good two hours. All of a sudden, the door opened and there she was. And she said, Jack, uh, come with me. I have a surprise for you. She goes over to the first case and she takes the lid off. She starts pulling out coats from the trunks. And John's gonna buy this one and I'm giving this one to John's sister and I'm giving this one to my sister. And I'm gonna take this one and John's gonna wear this one. It just went on and she went to the next trunk. She bought almost 70 fur coats. John came back and he said, did we do well? I said, you did great. I couldn't have called Ira Neemark any faster. He said, we just sold John Lennon almost 80 fur coats. And the sale was well over $400,000. That was like selling two and a half million dollars worth of furs. It had never been done. And we went to sleep that night very, very content. Was a night like Ethel Merman, not a sailor in the sky, a kind of aged gentleman was giving me a try. I remember it distinctly, as clear as yesterday. I was excavating mucus, and I thought I heard him say. Oh, timorous, beastly, wa'ur the briny sea. The new is out the broken, the mooklick dinna tree. It's a long way to Tipperillo, Hawkeye. Mine eye was clouded o'er as I heard his mournful song. I asked him what the time was. He said it wasn't long. On Sunday, January 21st, after John obtained a travel visa from the Consulate General of Egypt, the Lennons flew from Kennedy Airport to Cairo. Three days later, on January 24th, the Lennons returned to New York, but not before John had sent his Aunt Mimi in England a postcard, which read, Hello Mimi, I was here, but now I'm not. Has been brought to my attention. His mind was empty, but his bowels was full, you see. Or as his mother put it, his mind was empty, but his bladder was full, you see. That's what she used to say, you see. See, when your bladder's full, it's hard to think of Rimsky Korsakoff, isn't it, love? Yes, very good, oh yeah. Well, why keep turning it on and off then, you fool? Get on with it, all right, all right, all right. 
So we took our protein drink in the morning. I never felt any better in my life. Most of it is spilt on the floor, you see. We cut each other's hair. Generally a good time was had by all, you see. But he kept insisting on fiddling in the chapel, you see. Fiddling in the chapel's no good, you see. I said, look here, David, I said, there's no use you fiddling in a chapel, you see. Chapels ain't for fiddling. He never understood me. He says, I always fiddle in the chapel. I said, David, you don't fiddle in the chapel, you pray in the chapel. He said, I'm praying for a fiddle. On January 31st, over in London, George Harrison flies out of Heathrow Airport en route to Rio to attend the Brazilian Grand Prix. While in Brazil, he is interviewed by Brazilian and Argentina television. Mostly, they ask him about the Beatles. George Harrison, a figure fundamental of the music moderna. How do you see the phenomenon that destroyed the Beatles? It's like, I don't know, it's um, something that happened. It just was like magic. It happened and it was bigger than any of us thought. And uh, I don't know, nobody can explain. No sería posible que se reunieran de nuevo, que se volvieran a reunir, no es posible en el futuro. I don't think so. The best way to explain that is to say, like when we all live together with our mother and father, and when you get older, you all even live with your wives, and you don't go back to live with mom and mother and father. El tango, ¿qué opina del tango? Tango. Do you like tango? Yeah, it's okay. I don't dance. I don't dance. Durante todo esse tempo, qual foi a música que você mais gostou de gravar? Como Beatle ou não Beatle? Oh, well, uh, well that's a good one. That was a good one. You know? Something in the way she knows me like no other lover. Dessa eu gosto e, e é bom porque mais de 150 gravações diferentes. Elvis, Frank Sinatra, James Brown, todo mundo gravou. Depois do fim dos Beatles, você é considerado o ex-Beatle que tem mais sucesso individualmente. Como é que você vê isso? Quer dizer, você era um dos mais quietos na época e agora é um dos que tem mais sucesso. Bom, quando os Beatles acabaram, logo depois eu tive alguns grandes sucessos. All Things Must Pass, My Sweet Lord, o concerto de Bangladesh. Na época, o Paul estava começando o conjunto dele, Wing. E agora eu não faço mais shows. O Paul continua um viciado, um fanático pelo trabalho. Ele continua viajando, gravando, fazendo shows. Ele ainda trabalha no ritmo que a gente tinha na época dos Beatles. Por isso hoje eu acho que o ex-Beatle que faz mais sucesso é o Paul. George flies back to London on February 8th. In London on February 9th, preparing for the release of his new album, Harrison appears at BBC Broadcasting House in Portland Place for the BBC Radio 1 program Roundtable with host David Kidd Jensen. Kid Jensen. Alongside George is Michael Jackson of the Jackson 5, who currently are on tour in the UK. The news at 6.31. Radio 1 Roundtable
And a very special roundtable tonight, too, because I have very two very distinguished people in the world of popular music. Michael Jackson, welcome for the first time to the roundtable. How are you? I'm doing good. I saw you, of course, on Top of the Pops last night. I was with you on Top of the Pops <laughs> last night. You're in the midst of a, a big world tour now, right? That's true. We're uh, doing a lot of different dates in Switzerland and Paris. How far into the tour are you? We just started, actually. We're two weeks into it. And you're all geared up. you got to pace yourself or something like that, I would imagine. Yes, we've been so busy. We had rehearsal every day. I'm going to find out about some of the things that you've been doing. I'm glad you were able to make it along to the program. And in terms of, of global popularity, I suppose the Jacksons are only eclipsed by my next guest's old band, George Harrison. Welcome. Good evening, kid. Hi. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. And you've had a busy time, too, because you've just flown in from... A Rio. Rio by the sea. <laughs> the only stock in Rio. <laughs> Were you doing anything musical down in Rio, or was it... Uh, I, I sort of used uh, the excuse of going to see the Brazilian Grand Prix to have a look at Brazil, or a part of Brazil, because I've never been to South America before. In fact, none of the Fab Four have ever been there, which I found out when I arrived, because it was a bit of uh, mania down there. But it's a wonderful place. I'd love to go there, a country I, 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 one day I will go there. Well, you're both in the program. There's so much to talk about, and we'll do that, and also play as many of the new releases as we can between now and 8 o'clock. It's the round table, and our first record up tonight is from Foreigner, who enjoyed great success in America. In fact, uh, this current record's number 20 in the charts over there. It's called Blue Morning, Blue Day. <laughs>
and that's uh, a new single release over here for them on blue vinyl not just on blue vinyl but it's sort of a picture disc as well and michael jackson i'll go to you first and ask your reaction to that i like the guitars on that it's uh, very strong in the beginning i love the guitars on the uh the one you played of him on uh, george's yeah yeah did, on dark records I like that a lot. Right. I mean, I think it gets your attention in the beginning. Right. I, actually, it's strange that Michael should talk about guitar work in that because the guitarist is Mick Jones, who was a guitarist in a band I saw you with in New York television a few years ago called Wonder Wheel. Gary right. Wonder Wheel. That's He's right. Amazing. In fact, Mick Jones, um, I'm pleased for him that this band is a success because we first met him in 64 in Paris in the Olympia, and he was the musical director for Sylvie Vartan and uh, what's his name Johnny Johnny Halliday Johnny, Johnny Halliday <laughs> and uh, at that time Mick was like the conducting the band and playing guitar and he was with Gary Wright also in um, apart from Wonder Wheel in Spooky Tooth so I thought the record was was very <laughs> pleasant and he is a great guitar player yeah I like that the thing about Wonder Wheel was uh, it was abandoned, and I'd, I've never seen any of uh, your, you or your, your former uh, pals talk about, or you're still friends of yours, presumably, the Beatles, uh, yeah. talk about other bands. But seeing you on television in New York uh, with Wonder Wheel, you obviously were very keen on them. Whatever became of them? Well, actually, uh, Wonder Wheel uh, was a sort of in between Spooky Tooth, Spooky Tooth splitting up and then getting back together again. So Gary Wright formed Wonder Wheel, and then part of that band uh, well they split Wonder Wheel and then they got back the singer from Spooky Tooth uh, with Mick Jones and Gary Wright and I uh, forget the drummer's name but they reformed Spooky Tooth uh, for a couple of records and then Gary Wright went his own way made a solo album which you know uh, Dreamweaver that's right and he's appeared on record with yeah. you of and Mick Jones uh, I don't know what happened to him up until they made the first Foreigner album which is, was a huge success in America. Strangely enough, they, they've never really happened here, but I think that is the record to do it for them. This is Nicolette Larson, and this is a new single on Warner Brothers. It's a Neil Young song called Lot of Love.
in America, that's number 10. It's just been released over here on Warner Brother Records and Lot of Love. And George Harrison, you expressed interest in that record before the program. Yeah, I think she's very nice. She looks nice, too. She sings good, <laughs> and the, the production's really good. Ted Templeman, one of Warner Brothers' um, producers. How interesting to know who played the sax on here. Sounds a bit like Tommy Scott. <clears throat> but um, I think if Stan and Reg, the Warner Brothers promote that should be a big hit. <laughs> uh, were you familiar with that song before or just Nicolette Larson? Just Nicolette Larson, yeah. Actually, my missus did play it to me this afternoon, coincidence. Uh-huh. So she likes it too. She's a, a session singer, not your missus, but Nicolette Larson. Oh, yeah. I've never met her before. I never really heard much about her until this album. <clears throat> yeah. What about you, Michael? I like it a lot. I've heard it lots of times. And I it, guess so, yeah. Of course. And I think it has a beautiful melody, especially the punchline. Sing a that thing. It's nice. Very familiar tune. Melodies is, is, is obviously, uh, these days, a very important very. part of, of your your music. I've noticed that the last couple of things have been released have, have had a very strong melody line that it was not maybe so obvious in the earlier records that, that, that you released. Uh, that's true for the singles, but... Um for the other stuff, I mean, it's different. I mean, I think melodies are always important. I mean, especially like some of the the old Beatle things. I mean, I think the melodies are beautiful. I mean, that's that's what I think make them stay around so long. Yeah, that's why I like melodies too. Really, I, the thing that put me off a lot of pop music is the way it's uh, you know you can't distinguish what the tune's that's supposed right. to be. Actually, I disagree. I think the Jacksons had a lot of melodies. Remember the first big hit that I ever I heard about. was. No, uh, what was that one? We had a fantastic bass line. Uh, all of you remember the Love the title. You Save, ABC, Later, um, something like that. No, I, I forgot it anyway. But yeah, that's it sounded really a bit like melodies. I mean, if you just hum, uh, Here Comes the Sun or Fool on the Hill, I mean, the melody is so pretty, you don't. I mean, the lyrics are beautiful too, but. I mean, you don't Well, really those need are it. Both, both songs of yours, are they not? Not Fool on the Hill, no. That was um, uh, Paul's song. The other one, that was mine. And you were mentioning that from an, an album that's coming out soon, the Blow Away single is taken from a new album called George Harrison. You've got a song on it, uh, oh, yeah. Cousin to uh, Here Comes the yeah. Sun. Yeah, Here Comes the Moon. <laughs> I thought, um, I mean, it was the circumstance. I was in a particularly great place when I saw the moon coming up. And I thought, wow, you know, all this and Here Comes the Moon. And then I thought, no, I couldn't write a song called that. They'll kill me. But... As it happened, I wrote the song, and um, it turned out really nice, so it stands up in its own right. And any other songwriters around, they have had ten years to write Here Comes the Moon After Here Comes the Sun. So <laughs> nobody else wrote it, I might as well do it myself. <laughs> is it a pretty song like Here Comes yeah, the Sun? Yeah, it, it is. It's, in fact, it, it, it's a very sort of peaceful song, and the problem with uh, mixing it was I kept falling asleep. By the time it gets to the end, it's put me into a dream world. Well, it's obviously a track that we look forward to hearing from this new album, which should be out uh, soon. Soon, I, I don't re recall which day. 23rd, I think, for my birthday. I remember reading that uh, when uh, John and Paul were writing songs for the Beatles and the, all that output, it was a while before you worked up sort of courage to present your songs to, in, in, in that well, concept. Was that for the same reason? No, no, they wrote... They wrote uh, right from during school, you know, when we were at school, they wrote a load of, of tunes, which, you know, were not really that good. Well, a couple of them, I think one of them we recorded on the Let It Be album, One After Nine or yeah. Nine. Yeah. Well, that one they wrote, uh, you know, when we must have been about 15 years old. 
16. So they had a, a bit of a head start, but because they did write such good tunes and the Beatles took off well, it was made it more difficult for me as a songwriter because, you know, the starting point had to be a bit, uh, you know, I mean, it's, if there's already so many good tunes, then I have to try and write better. So um, I think the first tune I wrote was 1963 uh, as an experiment to see if I could write a tune. It was called Don't Bother Me. It's a grumpy song. <laughs> it actually was all right for the first tune, but but then it was really a matter of practice. The more you do, the more easy it becomes. Since she's been gone, I want want to talk to me. It's not the same, but I'm to blame. It's plain to see. So go away, leave me alone, don't bother me. I can't believe that she would leave me on my own. It's just alright when every night I'm all alone. I've got no time for you right now, don't bother me. She's here, please don't come near, just stay away I'll let you know when she's come home until that day Don't come around, leave me alone, don't bother me about your album, which is doing well, the Destiny album, after we hear another record, which is going to be some rock and roll from Dave Edmonds, who guested on the program uh, last week. This is A1 on the jukebox. Seems so deep. I live 
studio with Charlie Gillett talking about other folks' records, and I know he listens to the programme. Dave Edmonds, well, good evening. That's A1 on the jukebox, which is taken from the album <coughs> Tracks on Wax 4. And uh, like Nick Lowe, who produces Dave Edmonds' songs, his songs have uh, some sort of familiarity about them. This reminds me of other things somehow. Yeah, I agree. I like Dave Edmonds, uh, but that song reminds me straight off... I've never heard it before, but it's, uh, I want you to tell me how you walk down on me. You know, the Everly Brothers walk right back, um, speed it up a bit, except for the bridge, different bridge. But it's um, a <laughs> pretty pleasant record, though, all the same. It's nice. Rock and roll, I would imagine, played an important part in your, in your early days. Yeah. Who you, did so. you have any heroes that are still with you today? Yeah, I, I must admit that. The, the stuff I liked back in the late 50s, early 60s is still the, the, the music I like the most now. You know, Eddie Cochran, Buddy Holly, Little Richard, Larry Williams, uh, you know, those sort of things. Timeless. Yeah. What about you, Michael Jackson? How uh, far as the record or...? Rock and roll, generally speaking. Um, it's about the same people he said, Chuck Berry and... Uh but he howling a little Richard and all those guys. You recorded a song, Rocking Robin, but not, you've never really gone into a ro recorded a rock and roll number or such, have you? Um, yeah. On our new album, Destiny, there's one that's, I mean, it's kind of disco-y, but rock and roll. It kicks off. It's called All Night Dancing. The new album you're kind of pleased with, I would imagine, because you've actually produced and, and wrote all the songs on the album. There's one song that... Um, you didn't uh, have a 100% hand in, in, in recording, but most of the album you had, this was the first yes. time for you, wasn't it? Right. Why, why this album and, and not before? What, because uh, it's kind of difficult to get people to believe in you, to, you know, you have to tell them, I, you know, I want to do it for once, and, and some people believe in you, some don't, and finally they give you the chance, and they see what you can do, and then they let you do it. So you're confident in, in just going on from here, I suppose, and doing mm -hmm. your own stuff. Did, did, let me ask you a question. Did you guys always write your own stuff, I mean, from the beginning? Yeah, well, John and Paul wrote right from before we um, ever made How did you ever records. manage that? I don't know. They were clever little fellas. <laughs> but I mean, we did record, um, you know, the first two albums we recorded, about half of uh, the albums were other people's songs. Like, we, we did a lot of cover versions of... Like we did Twist and Shout, the, oh, yeah. the Isley Brothers. Matchbox. Yeah. Matchbox. We did all kinds Slow of, down. you know, and, a, and some more obscure tunes. Well, we did Money, too, like the... Dizzy Miss Lizzie? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. We did a lot of uh, other people's songs in the early mm. days. That's right. But it all, it's amazing. Uh, the, the, the way that your careers have, have gone and you've, uh, and you've sort of lasted, both of you, through so many, many years. And, uh, Michael, you particularly um, sort of overcame the initial kind of teenage hysteria and have really established yourself in, in other areas where you do sort of cabaret rooms and you fill concert halls and things like that, you know, where people will listen and not just scream all the time, you know. Thank you. Uh, I mean, I'm thankful that uh, there's so many different things that I want to do and uh, being able to do it, which is important. Good. Dave Edmonds, I like the record A1 on the jukebox, by the way. We've almost forgot about that. <laughs> what about you, Michael? Uh, I like the story. I do. It seems like, oh, um, rock and roll, kind of. I mean, it reminded me of an old tune when it first kicked off, the, the style of the music. I like the story, though. But why did he end it with, I'm nowhere? I noticed. No, he was saying he's A1 on the jukebox, but it's not. it's nowhere on the charts. Which is a good story. It sounds like 
It's like a nowhere on the charts, I think he said. Yeah, it? yeah, that's it's right. It's like a sort of country western type idea. Yeah. You know, that sort of... There is a certain amount of truth in that, of course, whereby jukebox in America, they have their own charts because jukeboxes, uh -huh. you know, yeah. you, you see songs in jukeboxes for years and years, the same songs. Keep yeah, coming. it's a good idea for, the, for a lyric. You know, sometimes to write a song is, uh, if you get a good idea, then you're often running. You can't... You know, you can sit there for hours and it's the initial idea, so that, as a song, is a good idea. Anyone who's had the pleasure of meeting you in this lifetime Would recognize the strength in you, the sense in you And the wisdom like sunshine in
Robinson, Stevie Wonder. What a lineup. Pops, we love you. Almost <clears> as good as the lineup in tonight's round table. George Harrison and Michael Jackson. I mean, Michael, obviously, you know a lot about Motown records. Would they have all been in the studio together recording that song? Um, I don't think so, no. Well, you arrived on the scene, Michael, in through Motown records, and that's where you found sort of success around the world. And then you you left Motown Records, and you're now on Epic Records here. What, what, t- tell me about the days w- w- with Motown. Uh, do you have, are they affectionate days that you remember Motown Records by? Well, the early days of Motown are really, I mean, they're kind of like classical days. Yeah. I mean, we were so young at the time. I remember everything. We first we first performed for Barry Gordy, and, his, and uh, they loved our performance in Diana came over special, made a special uh, thanks, and she congratulated us and told us she wanted to be a special part of our career. And, of course, she was. What songs were you doing? I mean, that, that interests me. Were you doing some old Motown hits, or did you have original things you were We were before? doing some James Brown stuff, some old Motown hits. We were doing It's Your Thing by the Isley Brothers. Oh, yes. How old would you have been then? Around seven. <laughs> seven? Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> Oh wow! I, I mean, yeah, you, the thing is that, that it's Motown. You think of, of, as you say, the family thing, and that's uh, you know that all the artists knew each other really, really well. Was was that the case then? That's very true. But what happened? Because things obviously were not so good. Otherwise, you, you would have left, presumably. You wouldn't have left. <laughs> right. Uh, there were a couple of things, and I mean, I hate deals and contracts and all that stuff. I think most artists do, but. Um, like I said before, we always wanted to write our own material and have our own publishing company and production company, different things like that, and we finally got a chance to do it. Uh, we never got that chance on Motown to write our own songs, which we always wanted to do. There's maybe a parallel with, with Apple, I suppose. That was a very uh, family-type thing, wasn't it, with the, with everybody? I mean, we get the impression that it was yeah. in the early days. Well, the thing is, we always... Um we always had the freedom to do what we wanted, and uh, the, that's, I think, the main difference that Tamla Motown, you know, up until, like, Stevie Wonder really turned it around, because up until then he was, you know, everybody was expected to do the the, the same sort of tunes, and uh, it was all the same production. It was like an assembly line yeah. in Detroit. It was like the motor cars, in a way, and they made really good records, but for the artists who wanted to... You know, be very individual. I think yeah, I could imagine it'd be quite hard for us. It, it was more of a thing to 
um, you know, Apple was just really our own identity sort of thing away from, although we were still with EMI, we wanted to have some other artists on the label, although we were with the EMI up until 75, I think. It was like the Foreign Legion. But I think if um, we'd have had a contract that was shorter, we would have left EMI much sooner. Just, you know, just in order to... Um, because we signed with them when we were very young, not seven years old. I mean, we were about four years old. <laughs> we signed with them until we were about 43. <laughs> the Apple days, though, I mean, you, as you said, you, you just brought in talent to expose through your own label. I mean, I associate Mary Hopkins very much with Paul McCartney. I associate actually Hot Chocolate with John Lennon because I remember that right, single yeah. Give Me a Chance. Who, yeah. who do you, which of the artists are Jackie Lomax? Well, I, produ yeah, I produced Jackie Lomax record and I did Billy Preston, Doris Troy. And, oh, Doris uh, Troy. Yeah. yeah. And I did, um, I did a, a sort of one-off record with the Krishnas, you know, the Krishna Temple. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually got in the top top of the pops. I got on top of the pops. It was great. All that with the heads. Well, that was the second one. They did the Hare Krishna Mantra. Yeah. But um, I don't know. I think uh, with Jackie Lomax, was, uh, he was from the old Liverpool days in a band called The Undertakers. And there was a lot of other friends of ours who were always saying, go on, why don't you, you know, record Jackie, give him a break. But, uh, and you did. What, what, what happened to Apple? I mean, is it, is it, is it a simple story, to, <clears throat> sort of a fable it's, somewhere? It's the most complicated story ever, you know. It's still there. Apple is more or less just a company that's, um, you know, employs lawyers yeah. <laughs> still. I mean, it's like, it's, I don't know, it, we've been trying to dissolve the, the thing for years, but um, you know, it's very difficult. It's very complicated. It's like um, war and peace. <laughs> okay, we won't get into that, but into some more music. Manfred Man's Earth Band and a Bob Dylan song called You Angel You, which is out on the bronze label as their new single.
Man for Bands, Earth Band. And that was, as I said, a Bob Dylan song called You, Angel, You. Well, of course, Manfred Mann has chosen other Bob Dylan songs and Bruce Springsteen songs before and successfully taken them into the chart. Michael, did that appeal to you at all, that uh, treatment of that song? I don't know if you're familiar with the original version, but... Could you ask George first while I think about it, please? <laughs> George, yeah, well, you, you as yeah. a friend of Bob Dylan's, why well, would you react to that? Yeah, I'd prefer Bob's version, to tell you the truth. But, um, I mean, that is, that's like a really strong uh, <clears throat> record, you know. I, to tell you the truth, I've no idea what, what's a hit and what isn't a hit these days. But um, <laughs> but that's you know that was quite pleasant. But uh, as I say, I prefer Bob Dylan's version. Nothing personal, Manfred. Okay, uh, Michael. Uh, I I could never fall asleep on it because it was so you know up and out. Um, God, I don't know what to say. Okay. But what is the name of it again? You Angel, you. In the group. Manfred Mann's Earth Band. I never heard it anymore. Oh, it would be interesting to get Bob Dylan's reaction on this. Actually, mm -hmm. I wonder, are you, would he be aware, or, or, or would you be aware, in the same kind of category of uh, of celebrityhood, I suppose, of other people recording your songs and taking them into the charts? Do you? Oh yeah, I'm sure. Once, it, if it gets a lot of radio play, and uh, you know, and it does anything in sales, I'm sure he'll know about it. I mean, that, that's really nice as a songwriter if somebody else does the songs. Even bad versions, you know, it's nice. Just the idea. But Bob is probably not impressed because it takes a lot to impress Bob Dylan. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, everybody's recorded his tunes. And... Yeah. What, what about your, your, your songs? Is there anybody that's recorded any one of your songs that you are particularly happy with the way they did? Ah, uh, yeah. One in well, there's, a, there's quite a few. I mean, I liked, uh, I've been a big fan for years of Smokey Robinson. He did um, something. Actually, when I was writing that song, I, in my mind, I was thinking of Ray Charles singing it. As it happened, the song ended up with over 150 cover versions, but when Ray Charles did it, I was really disappointed, except for the middle. The bridge to it, he sings great, but it was a bit of a corny sort of way he did it. But the one that really made up for all of that was James Brown. I did it really. James Brown did it in 1972. He redid <laughs> Think as a single, and on the B side, he did something which was, it's fantastic. I've got it on my jukebox at home, and it's, I mean, it's just unbelievable, you know, the way he sings it. And the arrangement is, is really beautiful. Michael. You were going to say something? I never, you wrote something? Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. I was surprised. That's another one of my favorite ones. I thought uh, Lennon and McCartney did that. Everybody thinks so. They do, don't they? I didn't know you wrote that one. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's 24 minutes before 8 o'clock, and here is an exciting sound that Paul Gambaccini has been playing on his American chart show on Saturday afternoons, mainly because the Blues Brothers album is number one in America. This single I'm about to play from the album is number 16 in the charts, and this is their version of a Sam and Dave song from many years ago, Soul Man. Yeah.
and duck time. Blues Brothers and a single from America's number one album called Soul Man. Actually, the Blues Brothers have other identities, and George, maybe you can tell us a bit about them because you're quite friendly, are you not? With them? Yeah, um, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, uh, they do, and they've been for years on a show called Saturday Night Live. And also, John Belushi is uh, Ron DeKline, who was the Ruttles manager. <laughs> and Brian Thai, Dan Aykroyd, was the one who turned down the Ruttles. So I was surprised, although Belushi's always um, been quite famous for his impersonations of Joe Cocker. Yeah. Uh, so he's obviously is, um, you know, a potential serious singer too. So I thought the album was going to be maybe a comedy album, but obviously with uh, Dick Dunn and Steve Cropper and Tommy Scott and all those people playing on it, uh, it's good, very good. Talking about comedy, I must ask you about your involvement in the forthcoming Monty Python film, which is... Brian of, of Nazareth? Well, yeah, I think it's called uh, um, Monty Python's Life of Brian, although some people think maybe it should be called Brian of Nazareth, but it could be called Monty Python's Life of Brian of Nazareth. Um, well, I got involved with it because, um, well, actually, it's probably, say, on the beginning of the film, um, Bernard Delfont doesn't proudly present Monty Python's Life of Brian. I mean, I got involved with it when they backed out of the film. EMI. Because really, I'm just a Monty Python fan. I wanted to go and see it at the, the movies. So um, somebody suggested to me maybe I could figure out a way of raising the money for them to make it. That's all, really. But it's very funny, and it should be at your local cinema during the summer. Sure. Could you tell us a little about the plot? Is there? Yeah, well, it's really... It's, a, it's nothing to do with Christ, really. It's what it is, is um, a guy called Brian who gets born at the same time as Christ in the manger just across the road and it really just follows his life and he's you know he's a bit of an idiot really okay that's uh, Monty Python how, yeah, how everybody sort Brian. of was into um, Messiah mania you know they mistake all kinds of things as signs and start following Brian around thinking he's the Messiah <laughs> okay <laughs> I look forward to that in the summer
George, you, you mentioned that very often cover versions are not as good as the original versions. You were involved very much, obviously, with the original version of this song. Yeah. How does Lenny White's version grab you? I like it a lot. I think it's fantastic. It's still not as good as the original version, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, I still prefer the Fab Falls version, but it is great. I like that a lot. Michael, what about to your reaction to that record? I think it's very good. The way they updated it and made it sound good for today's sound. Thanks very much. Michael Jackson and George Harrison on tonight's roundtable. As George was on BBC One with Michael Jackson, Lennon, in New York on the same day, was answering some fan letters and sending them on personalized postcards. Today he sent a postcard to Emily Zasto, a fellow New Yorker who wanted to know if he had seen or is planning to see the play Beatlemania at the Winter Garden Theatre. On the card, he writes that he had no intention of seeing the Beatlemania stage show because he lived it. He signed off with a little bit of nonsensical Latin. Ad hoc vitello vertutem. Ad hoc vitello vertutem. With the absence of Lennon from the public eye, more and more fans seemed to gather around the Dakota waiting for him. Apart from the Dakota apartment, there have also been Lennon sightings in New York, like this one. At around 3 p.m., Lennon was seen on 3rd Avenue between 57 and 58th Streets.
A few days later in New York on February 12th, another Beatles fan wants to meet his idol. But this fan has a plan to meet him in his apartment. Paul Gorish, a 20-year-old amateur photographer from Newark, New Jersey. Paul Gorish was a lifelong Beatles fan with an elaborate scheme to penetrate security at the Dakota Apartments and meet his boyhood idol. It was February 12, 1979. Paul Gorish was a part-time driver for an electronics shop. At noon, he and a friend arrived at the Dakota, posing as TV repairman. Paul carried a copy of John Lennon's first book and a bogus service order to get him in the door. J&J &J Electronics, we're here to see uh... J.J. Lennon. Is he expecting you? It's right here on my right. We went up to the doorman. You know, I showed him the service order. I was acting like I, you know, because I had wrote J. Lennon, not John Lennon. I wanted to act like I was totally oblivious to who we were going in the apartment of. You know, he didn't even blink at it. It was perfect to him. It was Paul Gorish's lucky day. By coincidence, John Lennon was having problems with his VCR. Lennon's secretary assumed that Lennon had made the service call himself. Stop acting so nervous. Incredibly, the two imposters were allowed to proceed upstairs. I hear him. It's him. He's in the apartment. So I said to Mario, I said, he's in there. I can hear him. I said, we're going to knock on the door. I said, she's going to open the door, and John Lennon's going to be sitting at that table. The adrenaline's really flowing now for me, and I'm really excited, and I'm expecting the secretary... And my chin must have just dropped. J and J Electronic Services here. Because I was in awe of him. I'm just staring at him. I'm amazed that he opened the door. All right, come on in. It was really funny because I honestly think he detected that something was funny. And it must have been from my reaction, maybe, because I was so excited when I saw him. Maybe he had seen that look before, you know, of a fan. Who sent for you anyway? Paul's yeah, scheme well, to get an autograph here, soon backfired. The Lennon household had recently been the target of crank well, calls and threats. Lennon believed his secretary had called the repairman and became angry job. because he'd not been consulted beforehand. Come here. The secretary suggested that Paul Mrs. return Paul, in a few days when Lennon had calmed down. Have you guys come back another time? <laughs> sure, sure. So I was like a little upset. I was, I was proud that I got to at least see him and deal with him, but I was like a little disgusted at the way it turned out, and especially that I didn't get my autograph. Coming up in a moment. John is again face to face with Beatles fan Paul Gorish. They found Lennon in his first floor office. This time, Paul Gorish brought a camera. George releases a new album. A lot of people said that it's one of the best things that you've done since uh, All Things Must Pass. Is that the way that you feel about it? I think it's, yeah, I think it's a good album. And Paul dominates the TV and radio airwaves in America. Hope you'll enjoy the Wings special coming up next. Presented in full stereo on WPLJ 95.5 FM, New York's best rock. Next on Yesterday and Today. Or to contact the show, visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast at gmail.com. 
also visit at Yesterday Pod on Twitter and search Yesterday and Today Podcast on Facebook. See you next time. Paul Kaminsky. I'm James Kaminsky. And I'm Wayne Kaminsky. And we bring you the Kaminsky family of podcasts Yesterday and Today and the Third Men podcast. You might know me from one of those dumb voices I do, or my dad (laughs) from his better show than ours. Wow. (laughs) And we're here to tell you about some cool merchandise you can pick up for the shows. As we mentioned in each episode, we do not in any way profit from these shows whatsoever, but to break even on some expenses, we have put up some cool merch that you can pick up to help support the show. Yes, some fun apparel, things you can put on yourself. Are we going to be selling Marks and Spence underwear? (laughs) Don't worry, we will. (laughs) You can head to our social media pages, that's facebook.com slash yesterdayandtodaypodcast or facebook.com slash thirdmen or you could head to society6.com slash Podcast. that's society, the number six, dot com slash K-A-M-I-N-S-K-I Family Podcasts. Yeah, keep our lights on. I'm in the dark. Dad, any words of wisdom? Hello? The lights just went out. (laughs) Guys, we need your help. (laughs) Buy stuff. Perhaps a coffee mug that you can enjoy a beverage out of while listening to our shows. And if you haven't got yours, please send forth in and get a free one. All right. (laughs) Thank you, Dad. All right, we'll see you on the podcast, folks. Bye. It's audio. You can't see me. Thank you.